0: Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the Word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's Word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's Word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945 at 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. All right, Galatians chapter one, grab your Bibles, uh, turn there. Remember last week, easy way to find it. It is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. All right, so just turn to the middle of your Bible and just start thumbing to the right. You'll run across it. It'll be good. So uh, last week, first part of chapter one, let me give you just this much uh, of, of kind of a review because it's so important that we understand when and why this was written because it helps set the context for the entire book. So uh, the reason for the letter to the Galatians is uh, it was written around 50 A.D., by the Apostle Paul. It's believed to be the first of his letters. So this has happened roughly 17 years after the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So now Christianity is this new movement and a guy named Saul who was persecuting the church, we'll talk about it a lot today, has this transformation, radical transformation, and now he is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this was written with the central theme being this, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Can you say that with me? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. For those of you that are bilingual, Jesus plus nada equals salvation. I'm sorry, Jesus plus nada equals salvation. So so, uh, we don't need anything else but Jesus. That was for you, love. Um, Yeah, you, you don't need anything else. So the problem is, this was the message, the gospel that Paul was preaching in Asia Minor. Uh, All of these churches were being planted by him, and now he has gone away. And remember, he said, man, I'm astonished at how quickly you have deserted the gospel that we preach to you. Because there was this group of Jewish believers, they were called the Judaizers, they were coming along behind Paul and they were allowing, uh, they were preaching the message of Jesus, Jesus but they were also allowing their Jewish laws and customs to infiltrate their message. Their message was Jesus plus the law of Moses plus circumcision, ouch, equals salvation. So Jesus plus the law of Moses, they were saying, listen, we we believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we embrace that, but we know that we cannot now stop following the law of Moses. We need the law of Moses in our lives. Jesus plus the law of Moses plus the sign of that is circumcision and all of that together equal salvation. So Paul's assertion in the first 10 verses was that that gospel that they were all quickly turning to was false. He says, it's false. And those who were preaching it, he said twice, should be under God's curse. What did he mean? He's like, hey, we gotta take this seriously. That they have strayed away from the simplicity that it is only Jesus, only Jesus. And then remember, we finished last week in verse 10. And he says, hey, I'm not here trying to earn your favor. I'm not trying to earn your approval. And what we learn from that is that Jesus and people-pleasing don't mix. And so if you fancy yourself somebody that's really culturally relevant and you're always trying to follow the trends of the culture, that's cool. It's just not necessarily the way of Jesus. The form may change, but the substance has to stay the same. This timeless message Jesus equals salvation. So today we're gonna see Paul give the testimony of how he received his salvation and his calling directly from Jesus. And then he had this track record of what that transformation looked like. And so as we walk through the passage today, um, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see this very simple message this is who I was, this is my life when my life was transformed by Jesus. And this is who I am today as a result. So if you were making an elevator pitch, so any of you that are in sales know that you need your 30 second elevator pitch. Meaning that if you got stuck with the decision maker in an elevator, you got 30 seconds to wow them to tell them about what it is you're all about. Um, This is your elevator pitch as far as the gospel is concerned. This is who I was. This is what happened when I encountered Christ. Here's who I am as a result. Amen. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, I was a professional Christian that had developed a habit of lying and manipulation, people-pleasing, uh, and, and just a life of compromise led to a lot of brokenness in my life. It led to brokenness in my marriage. It led to brokenness uh, in, in people that were serious about following Jesus saw right through me. And I was just so incredibly lost. And on December 4th, 2010, Jesus came and found me in my brokenness, transformed me, and, and it was so radical. Uh, the church that fired me on December 2nd, 2010, three years later, three and a half years later, hired me to plant restoration. And so who I was, the liar, manipulator, people pleaser, Jesus transformed it. And then over time, the product of that transformed life was a track record that I was following Jesus. And the person that was really a spiritual father to me over time saw it and said, I want to affirm that you're not who you were. Thank God. So I'm, I'm 13 years sober, y'all. Jesus has changed my life. So we're on floor like 20 right now. It's longer than a 30-second pitch. But here, here's the point. I'm not who I was. I'm not who I was. Um, your story of how Jesus has transformed you is powerful, okay? It is the most compelling thing about you. When you're sharing your faith, your story of how Jesus changed you, it's the most powerful thing you can ever share. It's not the Romans road if you grew up in that culture. It's not the four spiritual laws if you out with Billy Graham. Uh, it is the story of how Jesus changed your life. Yes, amen. However, it's only as powerful of your track record of living transformed. Yes, amen. What do I mean by that? Talk is Cheap, cheap, cheap. Talk is cheap. Who you say you are has to be matched by your lifestyle, a proven track record over time. So let's look at his story today. His story is incredibly compelling. In fact, I was talking with Lowe before the eight o'clock service today, and uh, we were talking about the message, and he was telling me about George Whitfield. Um, George Whitfield was a preacher evangelist in the 1700s. He was a part of the Great Awakening in Britain, and someone asked him after uh, a meeting one time, he said, how many conversions did you have last night? And his answer was, "Ask me again in 20 years." Mm, that's good. That is. Good. We're not talking about event evangelism. We're not keeping record uh, of, of how many people came down an aisle and wrote on a card. It is a proven track record over time that is the proof that you follow Jesus. Amen. Talk is cheap. Puck is cheap. So let's get into the passage, starting with verse 11. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So he's already stated this. Remember in verse one, he starts it with saying, Paul, an apostle, sinned not from men nor by a man. You can put that up. But by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So that's where he starts, the whole letter. He states, listen, I wouldn't sit... By man, I don't have a message that came from men. It is from direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So he's calling out those who were adding to the message of the gospel, talking about the Judaizers. So I want to be fair to the Judaizers for a minute. I think maybe they get a little bit of a bad rap because when we think about it, we think, hey, he's already said, man, they should live under a curse. But can you put yourself... Just for a minute, in Jerusalem, Jesus has come, and you, as a good Jew, knowing that you are steeped in the Jewish law, the law of Moses, you've been circumcised, but now you have come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And even you're filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you're part of the 3,000 that said yes to him in Acts chapter two, and so you're pretty excited. But what do you have? You have a lifetime of baggage. You've got all of this religious baggage. You have uh, come to believe over the course of your life that the law is what saves you, that the law is what makes you righteous. When in reality, we've talked about it a lot. We talked about it all through Hebrews. The law was not what made you righteous. The law was just to remind you, given to you by God, to remind you how unrighteous you actually were. Because you can never live up to the law. Do you ever feel like you're a miserable failure that you're one step forward, two steps back? Yes. Just me? Okay. So, uh, so, so you look at that and you just think, man, they spent their whole life feeling the weight of the law. And even after they trusted Jesus, these Judaizers were like, well, I mean, I don't want to completely abandon that because that still makes me feel good when I do right. When I do the right thing, it makes me feel better. And you know what? Who doesn't love a little bit of shame when I'm doing the wrong thing? It was, it was for them balancing the scales in their lives. And then they're thinking, I mean, I was circumcised, so you have to be circumcised. And so they were taking this whole idea out of Jerusalem into the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, and it was kind of this uh, nationalistic call to become like Jesus, but in reality it's become more like me. Become more like me. You've got to look like me in order to follow Jesus. You've got to act like me in order to follow Jesus. But i got to imagine that Paul understood where they were coming from. Think about his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about circumcision here. For it is we who are the circumcision. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. We who, are, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now look at what he says. If anyone else thinks they have confidence... In the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, what? Faultless. What is faultless? That's perfect. Yes. He said, when it came to following the law, knowing the law, I was perfect. And he goes on to say, whatever gains... To me, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Yes. So what we say there, like it, as as we're thinking about Paul's life, he was a little bit of a mess. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and what he's saying in that passage is, "I do you better than you do you." Yes. If you if you want to if you want to go to war with me over religion, I know it better than you do. And he says it's a broken system. He says, I count all of that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So he goes on to say that he did not receive this by any man, nor was he taught it. So upon saying yes to Jesus, he wasn't hanging out in Jerusalem with the disciples. He wasn't hanging around in the early church going, feed me, feed me, I wanna know. No, he had received this message directly, a revelation from Jesus. Acts chapter nine, if you don't know the story, It says that meanwhile, while Saul, he changed his name to Paul after trusting Christ, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So, if that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, he had letters from the religious authorities so that he could persecute and or execute those who are following the way of Jesus. As he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Do you see the gospel, the four spiritual laws in there? Nope. The revelation he received from Jesus was the power of the Holy Spirit in his life who empowered him to live. He goes to this house in Damascus and, um, and God had come to a man and said, hey, I want you to go and I want you to minister to this man named Saul. Saul. He's been blinded and I want you to go tell him that his calling is to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, can you imagine this guy Ananias that Jesus directly comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go talk to this guy Saul. He's at this house in Damascus. Well, Saul was well known for persecuting. How would you respond to that? When Jesus comes and says, I want you to go to the worst of the worst and I want you to tell him that he has been called to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. You'd be like, swerve. (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah, uh, Jesus, you know what's going on with him, right? He's a murderer. He will kill a brother, right? But he goes. And Saul's life is forever changed. So, Paul's argument here over the next few verses will be that his credibility came from his transformed life. That the proof of his transformation would be his track record. And uh, maybe you get stuck here. Maybe right now, this is a place in the story where you're like, okay, wait. So what you're telling me is that I don't just have to live with the good scale, you know, outweighing the bad. Isn't that how we view life? That as long as I'm a little better than worse, it all evens out and the, all evils out, evils out in the end, evens out in the end. Isn't that what we all kind of believe? I mean, even some of you grew up in a faith culture that told you, hey, just pray a prayer and it'll keep you out of hell. I grew up in a faith that regularly they wanted to scare the hell out of me, right? So how many of you would like to go to hell today? Let me see a show of hands. Uh oh, no one. Pray this prayer so you get to go to heaven when you die. Well, that's a part of the gospel, but that's not the completeness of the gospel. The completeness of the gospel is when you were in your most broken place, which is when you were born, uh, this, this side of trusting Jesus, you're broken. You can't fix yourself. And Jesus came into your brokenness through the power of the cross to forgive your sin, to forgive your brokenness, and to establish a restored relationship with Creator God and dot 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 to give you the calling, the life you've always wanted right here right now. You get to be a part of kingdom activity extraordinary God activity right here, right now. Heaven's just the icing on the cake. He changes your reality today. So It's not about you being a better version of yourself. It's not about you being Adam 2.0, right? I mean, I'm sure that's great. But isn't that what so many of us believe about following Jesus? That as long as as I look more Christian, that's what it's all about. And Jesus says, hey, stop striving. Receive me. I'll change you from the inside out. I'll change your affections. I'll change the trajectory of your life. I'm not looking for you to do anything. In fact, I love you, but you'll just screw it up. (laughs) Let me do it through you. Okay, let's look at verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So Paul says, listen, I was advanced in pharisaical living, advanced for my age, People older than me looked up to me because I was so advanced as a Pharisee, as a keeper of the law. And it says he was passionate for the traditions of his father, meaning the law of Moses. So he had that down. But here's what's interesting. He says, are you ready? He was so passionate about the law that he broke the law to enforce the law. How jacked up is that? He's saying, listen, I was so zealous for the law that in order to enforce the law, I had to break the law to try to get you to keep the law. You've heard the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. But this was his life. That in the name of God, he was doing horrible things as if the end justifies the means. So while he was the best of the best as far as being a Pharisee went, he was not righteous according to the law. He was broken and deceived. So this is self-righteousness at its finest. So does everybody understand what self-righteousness is? If you are self-righteous, here is the the primary uh, characteristic. You minimize your own shortcomings and maximize the shortcomings of others. So uh, that could be you. Maybe you find yourself uh, as someone who is self-righteous. If you're not sure, ask the people closest to you. And when they look away and don't answer, that'll give you your answer. Because that's the problem. Most self-righteous people don't know they're self-righteous. Because how could they possibly be? Because they're so righteous. Self. Yeah, so, so, uh, and, and man, is this not the church today? How judgmental we are? How we look around and, and we we're so ready to look at all the wrongs in the world and how messed up those people are. And the world is looking back going, hey, I literally saw you at the same party I was at last night. In fact, I carried you home. So maybe, just maybe, we could pump the brakes a little bit on self-righteousness. And that's what... Paul was saying here he's like hey listen I had it going on as far as the law was concerned And what's he saying this is who I was he's painting a picture of his former life this is who I was so what is your this is who I was think about that for a second In your elevator pitch about how Jesus has changed your life, who were you formerly? One of the biggest challenges for people in the way of Jesus today is that we minimize who we were. Or in the name of cultural relevance, we still kind of look like who we were. That Jesus has just been an add-on to a life of compromise and we're just trying to mitigate compromise a little bit by showing up at church Twice a month, maybe. He's like, hey, maybe there's more. So what is your this is who I was statement? I mean, there's so many people. I'm looking around the room, and I know so many BC stories. I know so many stories of conversations that I've had of of those of you in the room, and I'm not going to call you out. I don't want to embarrass you, but you know who you are who you were before you encountered Jesus. There's so many people who've encountered Jesus within these walls. You've been transformed. Before I was transformed by Jesus, this is how I used to be. This is how I used to think. This is how I used to live. So this is what makes Regen so powerful. So if you are a part of Regen as either a participant or a leader, would you raise your hand? Yeah, some of you, maybe you don't have the courage to raise your hand because you don't want people to know you're in regen. That's cool. That's why I said if you're a leader or a participant, so you they're like, which is he? It doesn't matter, all right? But here's the truth of the matter. Man, regeneration is such a powerful ministry because it forces every person in there to develop a recovery statement. And so the recovery statement goes something like this: Hi, my name is Greg. Have a new life in Christ, and I'm in recovery from lying, manipulation, and people pleasing. <laughs> Thank you. The challenge for all of us, like our highest value at restoration, is transparency. Yes. We we want to live out loud who we are in the good and the bad. And we don't celebrate our brokenness, but I'll, I promise you this, I'm always gonna acknowledge it. Yes. I have not arrived. And I hope that, that in your relationships at restoration, uh, I know this, if you're not willing to live in transparency, you won't last here. You won't, because it will be unnerving for you. Because you'll be like, oh, we're being that honest. Swerve, I don't wanna be here. But it's the truth of the matter. Until you are ready to be laid bare and say, I don't have it all together, until you want to abandon religiousness and and that that idea that you have to clean up to come to Jesus, until you get rid of all that, man, there's no way you're going to make an impact in the kingdom of God. Because the truth of the matter is God does not waste a moment of your life. He didn't waste a moment of Paul's. He took the most broken and he transformed him. He kept his identity as someone who was passionate and zealous. And he turned his life around. So good, so good. So look at this, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, let's pause right there. God set me apart in my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, before he spoke the world into existence, you were on his mind. Before the foundation of the world and before you were in your mother's womb, he, he called you. He had a calling for your life. He has a calling for your life. Do you recognize that? Yes. That every person in this room, when he thinks about you, does he breathe life into you? He has a plan for you what Paul's saying here, and it really echoes the words of David in Psalm 139, taught through that at the end of June, when he said, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, I know that full well, get this, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes I informed body. Are you ready? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before any one of them came to be. Yes. That's E210 language, y'all. Yes. That's what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.10 when he says we are God's workmanship created in who? Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. That's Paul's language here. He's like, hey, Listen. God, by his grace, formed me, called me, before I even knew I was called. Paul was created on purpose for a purpose. He took a guy that was blinded by self-righteousness and opened his eyes to his true calling. I mean, just keeping it real, this should give you hope. If you look at it and go, I'm the worst one in the room, first God will go, probably, yeah. (laughs) But that's not the point because he takes the worst of us and transforms us and uses us for his purpose and for his glory. He's not cleaning you up to make yourself better. He transforms you for his purposes. If he can do that to Paul, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Look at verse 16. To reveal his son in me, he was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. And later I returned. To Damascus. So not only did he transform Paul, not only was his, his calling before he was in his mother's womb, but he, not only did he transform him, but he called this Jew, the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, to go into the Gentile world. Remember, we said who Gentiles were last week. They're the unclean and unworthy. Every non-Jew was a Gentile. Yes. And they were known to be less than. And he took Paul, a Jew of Jews, and said, hey, I'm going to send you into the Gentile world. So he studied the law. He could out-religious most, the most religious in Judaism. So if I'm sending Paul anywhere, where am I sending him? What, what, is, what are you into it? You send me back to Jerusalem. Go back into the lion's den where all the Pharisees are and educate them on what it means to live the way of Jesus, right? To me, that's just intuition. Go influence the influencers. And that's why I'm not God. His calling is often counterintuitive. So why would he do that? I don't know the answer for sure, but I started thinking, what if he had gone back to Jerusalem? What if that would have been his first step? Let me go back to Jerusalem, hang out, kind of get a feel for what this whole movement is. What if Paul, because he was so steeped in the law of Moses, what if he had gone back and what if he had become a Judaizer himself? What if instead of armed with the message from a direct revelation from Jesus, what if instead of obeying what he had been called to do to go and to teach and to plant churches and to share the gospel with the Gentile nations, what if he had just gone back to Jerusalem because that would have been way more comfortable? And what if he had become the very thing that he was writing against? Um, I tell new believers a lot to limit their exposure to believers. Yeah, because here's what happens. People that are passionate about Jesus come into the church and you know what they get told? Calm down, calm down, pace yourself. Marathon not a sprint. I've called her out before but I'm gonna call her out again. But you have to be quiet and not say anything. Okay, so, so Sheila's exhibit A. And it's, it's pretty fortuitous that at 945, she runs up on one side, Jeff runs up on the other. He yelled at one point. It startled me a little. But, uh, but here, here's, here's, the, here's the point of the matter. So many people have come to me Talking about how it's sometimes distracting, right? It's sometimes oh, just all the emitting and talking, and it's, it's distracting. And, and here's all I know go click the QR code and listen to Sheila's story. She has never gotten over what Jesus has done for her. Right. And so here's my question here's my question for you Should we be quieting her down, or should we be more excited? Come on. Because here's the problem: So many people start falling away of Jesus and then just get absorbed in this Western culture Christian church that is actually really dead and boring. And that's not the way life was meant to be lived. Life is an adventure with Jesus. And we dumb it down all the time. What if there's more, y'all? What if we were called to something greater? And so would we be a church that is an incubator for the presence and power of God in such a way that it is stirring up our affections for Jesus, that it's sending us out rabid for the purposes of God, that we're not part of this Western movement that is bringing no life, I love what God is doing here. And every time I start praying, I feel like he's saying, Greg, I've barely scratched the surface. There's so much more I want to do. And I think you're here because you intuit in some way that it's something you want to be a part of too. But know this, it's not for the person sitting next to you. It's for you. We change the world when we say, I say, Jesus, I never want to get over what you've done for me. Yes, so if today, the confession of your life is I'm still who I was, that's okay. Just be honest about it. Because when Jesus comes and transforms, he will transform your life in a yes, radical way. Amen. And he'll give you something new to live for. Yes, amen. So think about this. Paul, who you know, was abusive, persecuting, executing. Look throughout his letters. He talked about the deep affection he had for the people of the churches he planted, Philippians 1.3, I thank my God every time I remember you. Colossians 1, three. we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. First Thessalonians 1.2, we always thank God for you and continually mention you in our prayers. Romans 1.11, I long to see you. This is not an angry man writing these letters. It's a man with deep affection, with deep compassion for those that he's leading and pouring into. You know what it is? It's his track record. We're reading his words today because his track record of faithfulness over time. When Jesus opened his eyes, he opened the way he saw people. Would we be a church that sees people differently? Mm. That we don't look the other way when we see people that don't dress like us? Mm. That we don't get enraged when we find out somebody doesn't vote the way we do? Mm. Amen. Would we be people that are genuinely curious about what's going on in someone's life? That when we see their brokenness, we see it as a sign to press in, not run away. Amen. So, when people look at your life as a Christ follower, do they see the product of your relationship with Jesus? Can you articulate how Jesus transformed you? When Jesus comes on the scene, you can't remain who you are. Second Corinthians 5:17 says if any man is in Christ, he is what? New. He's new. The old is gone. So, a part of your testimony can't be, well, I was broken and now I got a restoration and I'm learning how to just not be so broken. It's a very low bar. It's not about what church you go to. It's not about you being a better version of yourself. The truth is, when Jesus comes on the scene, you're new. Yes. You can't go back to the way you were. That means that sometimes old habits die hard. So it's not that you become perfect in a day, but you're in pursuit. Yes. Process. Yes. You're saying, Jesus, you've got my whole life. I'm not withholding anything. You can have it all. That's what a Christ follower should pray every day. What is your track record as a follower of Jesus? When people look at your life, who does your life say you follow? And once again, he says, I didn't get my message from others, which means he didn't go uh, to a conference or seminary He didn't get trained in evangelism by the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, He immediately began taking his cues, living in his calling directly from Jesus Christ. So just a reminder, they didn't have the Bible in 50 AD. This was a word of mouth movement. And most of the New Testament are words from Paul about what it means to live the way of Jesus. So we've got such a leg up. And, and so please don't hear this and go, oh, I don't need any, I don't need to learn how to read the Bible. I can just, you know, whatever whim I feel like, I go for it. And I call it, I heard from Jesus. Now we got a lot more to go on. So there's no such thing as new revelation. Jesus can reveal new things to you. So it may be new to you, but his word is timeless. And he's given us everything we need for a life of godliness. It's all right here in his word. And the power of the spirit reveals to us how to apply this word to our lives. But he says, like he said in verse one, hey, listen, I'm an apostle because I had an encounter with Jesus. I don't need to go, I'm not taking my cues from the apostles in Jerusalem. Love them, respect them. He eventually goes and hangs out with them. More for clarification to make sure they're on the same page. And we'll see more of that in chapter two. So let's finish this chapter. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praised God because of me. So it says it wasn't until three years later that he goes to check in to the church in Jerusalem to get to know Peter and James. By that time, he had already planted churches all over Asia Minor, and he's going back to Jerusalem just to make sure they're on the same page. He was already a force in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the word on the street in Jerusalem? Christendom's public enemy number one was now following Jesus and planting churches in the Gentile world. I'm sure that was hard to swallow. But what was the report? The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what does it say they did? They praised God because of him. When we hear stories of transformation and it's demonstrated by a track record over time, we got to celebrate it. That he takes the worst of us and he transforms us. And when we demonstrate a track record of faithfulness over time, we got to get behind people. Too often, we're like John 5, the man from Bethesda that was laying on his mat. Jesus healed him. He got up, picked up his mat. He's walking home. And what did the Pharisees say? It's the Sabbath, yo. Get back down on your mat. And he's like, I've been healed. I got legs. I mean, can can you imagine that they refused to celebrate with him this miracle that had happened out of some religious duty? At some point, the church has got to stop holding people captive to their past and let them be new. But it's got to be demonstrated, a demonstrated track record over time. Paul didn't show up in Jerusalem for three years. By the time he showed up, he'd already planted a whole bunch of churches. He had had already gained credibility among what they knew as Christianity. He'd earned his stripes. And so he could walk into Jerusalem with authority saying, hey, listen, talk is cheap. The proof is in the fruit of my life. Yes, amen. And by the way, this was just the beginning. Right, So, his track record of following Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at what it says. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Israelites? So am I. Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Then, parenthetically, I'm out of my mind for even saying this. I'm more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely been exposed to death again and again, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea I've been constantly on the move, I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the City and in danger in the country, and danger at sea, and danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled, I've often gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst, I've often gone without food, I've been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. So, the next time you get made fun of at work because you take some moral stand on something, think about Paul. We don't know what persecution is. We have no idea the cost of following Jesus. And we get asked by Jesus to transform and change our lifestyle this much and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought it was by grace I was saved through faith, not of works. It's not a cheap grace. And here's the thing. When we're transformed by the power of Christ, it's not a chore to follow Jesus. And the reason that it seems like such a chore is because we're scared to death to get in the secret place with him every day and say, hey, my life is yours. Transform me. The reason that we don't want to walk away from the things that we know are compromised in our life is because we're afraid to call it compromise and we're afraid to bring it to Jesus and go, I can't do this without you. Would you take it from me? Yes. Paul knew what it meant to follow Jesus. And he was in a culture that being on the front lines cost him a whole lot. And today, it's going to cost you reputation. We live in a post-Christian nation, y'all. So wrapping the flag around Jesus, it ain't the case. And it's actually not the point. Jesus is inviting us to rise above our politics and say, I'm a follower of Jesus first. I'm going to live that in spite of political persuasion. So, I want to close with a contrast of two people, and these people are not related at all, um, but these are the two that came to mind, Kanye West and Chuck Colson. So, if you're over 50, you know who Chuck Colson is. If you're younger than that, you're about to learn. So, Uh, But let me start with Kanye West. Kanye West, an icon in our culture today. And about four years ago, Kanye professed transformation about Jesus. He wrote an album called Jesus is is King. Uh, It won a Grammy for Contemporary Christian Music Album of the Year. Uh, He was doing conferences, arenas, large churches, and everybody's like, Kanye, Kanye. And man, we we were so quick to jump on the Kanye train right? And, and here's what I want to say. I'm not judging Kanye, but it's a proven track record over time because in recent days, he's gone back to saying crazy things about Jesus, crazy things about the church, crazy things about politics. And he's, he's gotten right back into the Kanye that we all knew before. And man, my prayer is that whatever started in him, that somehow that seed would be watered and that we can look up one day and see him be a real force for the kingdom of God and not just another flash in the pan with no credibility Chuck Colson he's an attorney and special counsel to President Nixon in the early 70s Uh, he was known as Nixon's hard man and evil genius of his administration He, he wrote this I was valuable to the president because I was willing to be ruthless to get things done. He was an attorney. He understood the law. In order to get things done, he broke the law. Came to light during Watergate, and after being convicted of conspiring to cover up stealing of government documents, he was convicted. He's on his way to prison, and on his way to prison, a friend came and gave him a book by C.S. Lewis. And through that book, he began following Jesus. He served his time about a year in prison. And when he got out of prison in 1976, he founded Prison Fellowship Ministries. In 1979, he took it global, Prison Fellowship International. And now what still exists is the largest, most robust uh, ministry To the criminal justice system around the world with prisoners coming to Jesus. So that's been about 50 years. Demonstrated track record over time. And here's the cool part you know, we think about the command to go, Jesus says it in Matthew 28 go into all the world, make disciples teaching them to obey everything I've commanded? We hear command and we're like, oh, I don't like, that feels legalistic. No. God doesn't waste a moment of your life. And what he'll do is he will take the darkest moment of your life, he'll redeem it, and then he'll send you back into the world armed with that story and know this, people that have experienced the same thing will flock to you because they want to know how they too can be healed. I was on a phone call for two hours this week with a pastor uh, up in the Northwest who experienced moral failure in the last two or three weeks. And somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I know a little bit of your story. Um, Could you encourage this guy? I spent two hours on the phone listening with him listening to him through tears and brokenness, just not know what was on the other side. And I got the opportunity to be an encouragement. And you know what my story was? It wasn't, hey dude, just bide your time, you'll get a big old church. It was, hey, embrace your brokenness. Know that Jesus wants to step into the most broken places in your life. He wants to heal. He wants to forgive. So jump in there, man. Jump in and make Jesus preeminent. Make your marriage a priority. And I don't know what happens in the future. I would take ministry off the table and let Jesus tell you when it's time, if it's time. But I never have that conversation. If Jesus hadn't first healed me, And so you know you. You know your story. You know who you were. Some of you are still who you were. And so what you need today is a transformative, powerful experience with Jesus so that you can begin the life that he's called you to for others of you. You've trusted Christ, but you're kind of sitting on the sidelines when he's like, listen, I redeemed your story for a reason. I want to use you. I'm not looking for God's secret agents, y'all. Go public. This is who I was. This is what Jesus has done in my life. And here's who I am as a result. It's the most powerful thing about you.